Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 34, Neil Feigenson, Experiencing Other Minds in the Courtroom. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Neil Feigenson. Neil is Professor of Law and Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at Quinnipiac University School of Law. He teaches evidence, torts, and visual persuasion in the law. Much of his research is in evidence, focusing on demonstrative evidence and visual rhetoric. Our podcast today features Neil's new book, Experiencing Other Minds in the Courtroom, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. The book addresses the use of simulation evidence designed to enable the jury to experience, seemingly firsthand, a party's particular viewpoint. For example, lawyers have sought to simulate what it's like to have tinnitus, or to suffer visual impairments, or to be a police officer in a self-defense case. Neil explores all of these examples in his book, talks about what makes them different from more traditional forms of evidence, and their benefits and hazards. Neil, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you, Ed. Let's start on a biographical note. You've spent a considerable part of your career focused on different types of demonstrative evidence, whether it's images or the use of technology or simulations, as in the case of this book. What draws you to this area of the law? What about it fascinates and interests you? How images and multimedia make meaning, how people use them to communicate and persuade, is, I think, just a rich and fascinating topic. It draws on uh, psychobiology and cognitive psychology, film studies and media studies, narrative theory, rhetoric, and much more. And when visuals and multimedia are used in the law, they become really important because whether a defendant is ordered to pay uh, perhaps millions of dollars in damages or even go to prison can turn on the effects that demonstrative evidence and argument have on the uh, decision maker. And I think as well that the more that video evidence, say in the form of dash cam or body cam video, is introduced in court, the more that lawyers use PowerPoint animations and even more innovative forms of evidence and argument, the more important understanding visual and multimedia evidence and argument becomes. So I've tried to spend a good deal of time understanding it better and I hope writing about it in a way that will help lawyers and judges and other legal academics understand it better as well. I've done some experimental research on various forms of visual evidence and the effects that they have on fact finders. And for almost the last 20 years, together with my colleague, Christina Spiesel, I've co-taught a course at Quinnipiac Law School called Visual Persuasion in the Law, in which we try to train future lawyers to be more aware of and more sensitive to the possibilities of visual rhetoric and visual argument, and also more adept at responding to the visuals that their opponents may use. Sounds like a class that I'd like to take at some point in time. Why did you decide to tackle this particular slice of demonstrative evidence in this book? So you're looking at 
simulations, and in particular, simulations of subjective experience. That's right. What specifically do you mean by that? And why is that a useful subset of the demonstrative evidence world to examine as a piece? First, what I mean by it is an item of demonstrative evidence, whether it's visual or auditory or both, that purports to recreate what a litigant is uh, perceiving, his or her private perceptual experience, whether it's impaired vision or impaired hearing. Now, the way I first got into the subject was almost by happenstance. I happened to be sitting in our video editing lab with a couple of our visual persuasion students several years ago while they were working on their final project, which involves making a video. And one of them happened to comment that the night before she had been at some kind of local bar function sitting next to a lawyer who was talking about a case that he had just tried. And in that case, his client, the plaintiff, was suffering from tinnitus as a result of an explosion. And the lawyer asked the client's audiologist whether it would be possible to give the jury a better idea of the sound that the plaintiff was hearing inside his head. And together they came up with the idea of creating sound files that would simulate the sound of the tinnitus, which of course only the plaintiff could really hear, and to play that for the jury, which they did. So when my student told me about this, I was just astonished. Now, I'd been uh, teaching the course at that point for almost a decade. I had been studying demonstrative evidence for even longer than that. And I had never heard of, of a lawyer using a demonstrative not to show what something out there in the real world looked like, a real event or a real process or object, the way that photos and videos and computer animations and simulations are typically used, but rather to recreate someone's subjective perceptual experience. So I decided to try to do something to <laughs> correct my uh, ignorance about the subject. Now, that's how I backed into it. I think that there are several reasons why it's worth studying. The first is that people's subjective experiences are, or at least could be, relevant in a wide range of cases, right? Starting with personal injury cases involving a plaintiff's impaired vision or hearing, but of course going well beyond that. Second, the fact that I wasn't familiar with this form of evidence suggested to me that most lawyers and uh, other legal academics probably weren't either, and therefore this was something new to study and write about and that I could make an original contribution. And it turned out that no one had looked into this before. Third, it immediately struck me when I heard about this demonstrative that the lawyer had created that the prospect of recreating someone's perceptual experience touched upon a profound question in epistemology, which is, how can we ever really know what another person is experiencing? So I found that fascinating in and of itself. But fourth, I was intrigued by the responses I got from lawyers to whom I spoke, who themselves had not heard of this sort of evidence, as to whether it should be admissible. Some of them said, very confidently, what's the problem? It's like any other form of illustrative evidence. If it helps the jury understand the testimony, fine. Equally uh, strongly, other lawyers said, you can't do that. How can anyone really know what the person is experiencing? How can we know that that's the sound the fellow is hearing inside his head? And the strength of these diametrically opposed intuitive responses to hearing about this form of evidence suggested to me that there might be some theoretical and doctrinal issues to be worked out here. Now, I recognize that on one level, it seems like a fairly small area of study, kind of novel and peculiar type of evidence that's been used in maybe several dozen, perhaps a few hundred types of cases, in any event, a minuscule proportion of all trials. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized that really understanding this form of demonstrative evidence, and in particular, what sort of reliable knowledge 
these recreations of subjective experience could possibly provide would require me to draw on a range of disciplines from psychology to psychoacoustics and perimetry to media studies to narrative theory and so on. And so it was interesting to me for that reason alone. It also occurred to me that the more that uh, digital technology advances, it's very possible that more and more lawyers will be resorting to this form of demonstrative evidence to help jurors understand their clients' uh, perceptual experiences. And so it may turn out not to be such an obscure corner of the law after all. Let me push you on that, yes. that reaction that you got from some attorneys that, well, what's the big problem here? And in some sense, that was my initial reaction to this material was, well, it's kind of like other demonstrative evidence. If you're talking about photographs or you have these great examples of LASIK surgery and the simulations of what happens when LASIK surgery goes wrong in your book, I guess the the reaction is, well, as long as the witness says that's the fair and accurate representation, it just becomes part of the witness's testimony. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you think that there's something different or something potentially problematic here. So what's that difference? Let me explain that, and I'll do that by giving you just a bit of background about the Devadas case, the LASIK malpractice claim in which these photo simulations were used. We'll need to have this background to understand what I think is problematic about these kinds of simulations. This was a fellow who actually took his wife in for LASIK surgery and then decided to have it done himself. As it turned out, it shouldn't have been done because the surgery was contraindicated for someone who had the prior condition that he had which was actually a kind of incipient deformation of the cornea, which the surgery would exacerbate. And it did. And so that after the surgery, his vision was blurred and doubled, and that at night, what should have appeared to be spots of light from headlights or streetlights, for instance, turned out to have these broad halos or even these explosive kind of starbursts, which made it very difficult for him to see clearly and impossible to drive at night. He sues the LASIK surgeon for malpractice. His lawyer enlists a visual consultant to try to create photo simulations of what the world now looked like to Mr. Devadas. And the way they did that was this. They started with photos that Devadas, actually his wife, had taken of just scenes from his everyday life, his pharmacy shelves, intersection on his commute home, uh, and so on. And the visual consultant and Mr. Devadas went back and forth, the consultant adjusting the photograph using Photoshop, until Devadas said, that's the way I see. That's the way things look to me. And two sets of these uh, simulations were introduced at trial. Turned out it was a very favorable verdict. The jury awarded $5.6 million to Mr. Devadas, $3.1 million of which was for pain and suffering. Now I can address your question. I think there's a very big difference between these photo simulations and the way in which a witness authenticates an ordinary photo. Photo simulations aren't like ordinary photos, and they should be admitted with much greater caution, if at all. And here's the reason. People are generally justified in accepting ordinary photos as reliable and accurate, independent proof of what the world looked like in front of the lens at the time the picture was taken. And the reason for that goes beyond the authenticating witness's statement that the photo fairly and accurately represents what the witness recalls having seen. It's based also on the entirely plausible belief that the camera reliably and more or less objectively records what was in front of it at the time the picture was taken and thus provides independent proof that that's what the world looked like in front of the camera at the time the picture was taken. 
It's this independent quality, of course, that uh, underlies the silent witness theory of admitting surveillance video evidence, even when there was no one around to see what the surveillance video camera was capturing, and therefore nobody who can say it's a fair and accurate representation of what I was looking at. So that's ordinary photos. The accuracy and reliability of the photo simulation, on the other hand, can't be grounded in the presumptive accuracy of the camera. The simulations may look like photos, but they're not. The way they're put together is much more like an artist's sketch, the kind of thing that a police artist might put together based on an eyewitness's description of what a suspect looked like. That is, the witnesses say so. When the police sketch artist is finished with the drawing, or when Mr. Devadas's visual consultant was finished with Photoshop, his statement, yeah, that's the way it looks, is the only warrant for the accuracy of the image. So photo simulations can't possibly offer independent proof that that's what his perceptual experience is like, the way that a photograph can offer independent proof that that's what that portion of the world looks like. So it's kind of interesting because what basically you're pointing at here is something that has always troubled me about the use of the witness to say, well, that's a fair and accurate representation and turning it into demonstrative evidence, which is that photos of actual real life scenes are not truly demonstrative evidence. They're kind of this hybrid that the legal system has put into two boxes, but perhaps shouldn't. Yes, the confusion in the doctrine regarding demonstrative evidence, as you know, quite well known and goes back uh, more than a century, as Jennifer Manukin wrote about some time ago. If we take the broader definition of demonstrative to include both images that are mere illustrations of testimony, like the photo simulations in the Devadas case, as well as images that have what I regard as independent probative force, like the ordinary photo or video, you can see that there's a very significant difference in the evidentiary status of these items that are lumped into the same doctrinal category and may in fact look identical to the trier of fact. And the problem, of course, here is that jurors can't distinguish between illustrative and substantive evidence when the two look the same to them, right? For all sorts of reasons, people tend to regard mere illustrations as if they actually prove something when they don't, especially if those mere illustrations look photographic, like the simulations in the Devadas case. So I think the upshot is that jurors may tend to give too much weight to the photo simulations as proof of what Devadas's condition is like, when they don't prove anything in and of themselves at all. You juxtapose the Devadas case with the Smith case, which is also about LASIK, but where the plaintiffs used a different kind of video technology or different kind of simulation technology. Can you describe the difference here and why that makes a difference from an evidentiary perspective? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, small point, the Smith case was not actually a LASIK case. She was suffering from something else, a condition called idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which results in an impinging on the optic nerve head. In any event, the consequence of that condition is that she suffered a severe constriction of her visual field, all right? So what happened in that case is that her lawyer asked her neuro-ophthalmologist whether there might be some way of recreating her visual experience for the jury. And in this respect, the strategizing is much like the strategizing in the Devadas case. And so what they came up with was this. The lawyer had a, a video producer shoot some scenes from Ms. Smith's daily life, analogous to the Day in the Life movie that's more familiar to students of personal injury cases. 
but with some of the screen masked, that is to say, blacked out, corresponding to the portions of Smith's visual field, which, according to her visual field tests, she couldn't see. So an ordinary video with a good deal of the surround blacked out so that what was left were just a few irregularly shaped. Smith described them at one point as like looking through a mail slot sized areas in her visual field. The video producer and editor worked in Photoshop to create those masks. He created them on the basis of the visual field tests and was able to go back and check with the neuro-ophthalmologist that the resulting product accurately corresponded to what the neuro-ophthalmologist said Smith's visual field tests indicated she could see. So here's the difference for our purposes between that sort of simulation, which I call a psychophysical simulation because it's based on psychophysical testing of Smith's visual field, and the first kind, the artist sketch simulation in the Devadas case. The video simulation in Smith does not depend for its reliability and accuracy only on the plaintiff's say-so, the way the photo simulations in the Devadas case do. They don't depend only on her authenticating the video as a fair and accurate representation of the way she sees. Rather, the warrant for the reliability and accuracy of the video simulation as a recreation of Smith's visual experience is grounded in the well-established, rigorously quantitative, reliable clinical field of perimetry, namely visual field testing. And it's the accuracy of the routine, properly conducted visual field test, which we know can describe a patient's visual field to within a couple of degrees of accuracy, and the reliability of the translation of those test results into the mask on the video, which again we know is reliable because the video editor could essentially read it off from the pattern of test results and double-check it with the neuro-ophthalmologist. It's those things that give us a good degree of confidence that the simulation of Smith's visual field condition is much more reliable and much more accurate as a recreation of what she's experiencing than our warrant for believing that the photo simulations in the Devadas case accurately recreate what it's like for him to see as he does. Let me step back and think about these simulation technologies on a more theoretical level. Yes. The book has this really interesting discussion on whether the legal system should want this kind of technology at all. How do you come down on these technologies? Is it really a question of the reliability that you were just talking about? Or there seem to be additional problems here with placing the jury in the eyes or through the, the lens of the plaintiff. Right. It's both, Ed, right? So as Rule 403 would indicate. First, as far as the reliability or probative value side of the balance is concerned, I do think, of course, it's a good thing for jurors to be able to, or fact finders, to be able to understand the facts of any case as best they can. And certainly when it comes to those types of simulations that are reliably grounded in objective measurement and not based only on the witnesses say so, it's a good thing for jurors to be able to have that more reliable knowledge of the plaintiff's subjective experience. On the other hand, these kinds of simulations can, of course, raise various risks to good judgment. One is the one we've already talked about, that at least when it comes to simulations that are really just illustrative aids, 
jurors may overweight them and think that they're probative when they're actually not. But any kind of simulation may, for instance, lead the fact finders to judge on improperly on too great an emotional basis, right? They may inspire very strong sympathy with the plaintiff, and they may raise a host of other sorts of biases. The one you touched upon at the end, I think, is very important. Any one of these simulations, regardless of how it's produced and regardless of its reliability, invites jurors to occupy the plaintiff's position, puts them in the plaintiff's shoes. And to that extent, it seems to implicate some of the same concerns that the rule against golden rule arguments does. Golden rule arguments being the sort of argument that a lawyer in closing invites jurors to determine pain and suffering damages by asking them to put themselves in the plaintiff's shoes and determine how much would it take to compensate you if you were suffering from the same injuries that the plaintiff is. Now, while these simulations don't technically violate the ban on golden rule arguments, they're not made during closing argument, and in fact, they don't explicitly ask the jurors to do anything, in a way, they implicate those concerns even more strongly because by giving jurors what purports to be the direct experience of the plaintiff's perceptual impairments, they may lead to that sort of identification with the plaintiff even more strongly. Now, I think that at least the, mo the more reliable forms of simulations, the ones based on clinical testing or objective scientific measurement, should be allowed in on balance. Obviously, it depends on the particular case. But they should be allowed in even though they invite this kind of identification with the plaintiff. And the reason for that is that unlike the traditional golden rule argument, which in effect asks jurors to extrapolate from their own experience and imagine what things must be like for the plaintiff. The whole point of these simulations is to replace that kind of thinking with a reliable recreation of what the plaintiff's perceptual experience is actually like. So it's much likelier that the simulations will lead to judgment that is actually more accurate to the extent it's based on juror's appreciation of what the plaintiff is actually experiencing, and more just, because they'll have a more accurate grasp of how far the accident or the malpractice has actually diminished the plaintiff's sense of self and personhood. Final question for you. This is obviously a rapidly changing area of the law. Where would you like to see future work in this area go? So I think there's two things that other researchers and possibly myself could pursue. One is to do more legal anthropological research, as it were, and try to find out more about the actual uses of these kinds of simulations. Given the relative happenstance of my coming upon them, and given the dispersed and fragmentary record that uses of demonstrative evidence in general tend to leave, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there have been many more uses of demonstratives of subjective experience and maybe different types of simulations, and that would be very interesting to learn about. The second avenue would be to do more of what I've started to do, which is to conduct experimental studies so that we could learn more about the effects that these sorts of simulations actually have on jurors' damage judgments and other decisions. And I think most importantly, to see whether there might be any sorts of interventions by way of jury instructions or otherwise that would help jurors differentiate between the different evidentiary statuses of the different kinds of simulations and thus use this sort of evidence more properly. Well, Neil, thanks for taking the time to talk about these intriguing new simulations that are being used in courtroom proceedings. It was great having you on the show. Ed, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Experiencing other minds in the courtroom is a taste of the courtroom of the future. 
or at least a possible courtroom of the future. In many ways, simulations are to traditional evidence what IMAX movies are to the radio storyteller. Rather than have witnesses verbally describe what they experience or experienced, and leaving the rest to the audience's imagination, the simulation delivers it directly to the viewer. In fact, one of Neil's chapters is appropriately and colorfully titled, That's What I See. On balance, simulation evidence seems to be a positive development to me, and if I'm reading and hearing Neil correctly, he thinks so as well. After all, if pictures are worth a thousand words, videos and other simulations are probably worth 10,000. But as Neil rightly points out, with great power comes great danger. The ability to confuse or mislead the jury, and the risk that the jury will overweigh this kind of evidence, mean that courts will have to be careful about how they monitor how it's used. Finally, new technology always seems to have a way of revealing the strengths and weak points of existing law, and simulation evidence is no exception. For example, simulation technology rekindles the debate over the proper treatment of visual evidence. As I noted in the interview, I've never liked how the law handles photographs as illustrative evidence, and Neil nicely explains why. That's the weakness in existing law. Here's the strength. Isn't it remarkable just how universal Rule 403 turns out to be? Here you have all kinds of high-tech, fancy simulation evidence, but as Neil suggests, the 403 framework still takes care of it all. It just goes to show that while the actual evidence may change with the times, the evidence rules, properly constructed, often have a timeless quality about them. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr-Carranza, and the music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.